Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. And we want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening about... Welcome to the History of Ireland. Last week, we ended with the sudden death of Arthur Griffith aged just 51. The leader of the treaty negotiations, the president for much of the War of Independence, and the founder of Sinn Féin itself. Griffith's loss was catastrophic to the young Irish country. It's fascinating to think how Irish politics might have played out if Griffith had lived to a ripe old age. Sadly, we'll never know. We'll never know whether he would have reshaped the country or whether things would have proceeded exactly as they had. His death would have shaken the movement. But it was nothing in comparison to what had happened a week later. Today, we're going to bail the blah, the field of flowers. Ironically, anyone who knows anything about Irish history in the 20th century can tell you what happened in Bail the Blah. I say ironically, because really, we have very little idea of what actually went down. Today, for a little while anyway, let's pretend like we don't know what happened. Let's tell the story. Despite Griffith's death, things did seem to be going well for the Irish Free State. And most of the country was coming under the Free State's control though the IRA's guerrilla forces were still strong throughout Munster. In July, Michael Collins had made himself the commander-in-chief of the Irish Free State Army. And that image of him in the green uniform with a cap has become what the majority of people picture when they think of the big fella. But as we know, Collins was always much more of an organiser and a politician than a soldier. And though he was no longer the chairman of the provisional government, he did all but retain that role. If there was one thing Collins was known to do, it was to amass power and carry out multiple jobs at once. On top of this, the Dáil had been prorogued since the beginning of the Civil War, meaning that Collins and the Free State Army were really not answering to any legislative body. This pissed off the Labour Party, who were the main opposition at this point. They wrote that they would resign their seats if a session wasn't called for before August 26th. Collins's response on August 21st was simply to double down and say 
it is wise to postpone the doll meeting as already suggested. Patrick Hogan, the agricultural minister, wrote to the wider Labour Party the next day, saying, I am again to remind you that the issue at stake is not whether Parliament should meet this month, but whether Parliament is to exist in this country. You see, all of this power grabbing was scaring people. And some historians do go as far as dubbing Collins at this point a military dictator. Or at least someone well on his way to becoming one. Charles Townsend wrote, He became a kind of generalissimo, combining military and political supremacy. Griffith had no desire or capacity to dispute the day-to-day conduct of government with him. And while Mulcahy had great administrative capacity, he deferred to Collins as a strategist and thinker. My personal opinion is I think this is going a little bit too far. Collins always believed that he was the best man for most jobs and took them on accordingly. He was often backed in this by those around him and his track record does speak for itself. But I'm not sure he would have ever been as blatant as to dissolve the doll and take full military control. You have to remember how entrenched democratic values were in the Irish at this point. Really can't be stressed enough. Though, and there's always something to muddy the water when it comes to the Irish Civil War, the highly undemocratic IRB did still, at this point at least, have some influence, and Collins was the president of its Supreme Council. So you can make a call for yourself. Was this typical Collins, working multiple roles to get the job done in a tricky situation? Or was he slowly amassing power in a way that would prove democratically troubling further down the track? The only real response is something you're going to hear me say a lot this episode. We simply have no way of knowing. As part of his role as Commander-in-Chief, Collins had been patrolling the country and basically checking up on the Free State's progress. That's why he found himself in Cork the week of August the 21st. He spent that Monday, quote, meeting with local representatives, setting up an intelligence network, and recovering money seized by the IRA from banks and custom offices. He also was said to have met with neutral IRA man Florence O'Donoghue, some say to broker a peace deal. And he visited his sister Mary. The next day, August 22nd, Collins and his entourage left Cork City at 6am. The convoy consisted of a scout on a motorbike, a crossly tender full of men, an armoured car, and the open-topped, bright yellow Leyland 8 that was Collins's touring vehicle. With him, acting as head of security, was Emmett Dalton, who, you'll remember, was the World War I British Army vet who'd been in command of the bombing of the forecourts. Collins and his convoy spent the 22nd travelling from Cork City to Skibbereen, via towns like McCroom and Clonakilty, only to head back to Cork later that evening. The idea was to continue on what he'd been doing the previous day. But what his actual intentions were, well, like everything else, 
are hotly debated. Some have cited that Collins said, quote, I will not leave Cork until the fighting is finished, and I'm going to put an end to this bloody war. But that goes against what Collins himself wrote on August 21st. The people here want no compromise with the irregulars. The people are splendid. Some describe it less as a peace mission and more as a bit of a victory lap. The young Cork lad back in his home county as the leader of the entire country. Maybe there's a little bit of a truth in that. Personally, I think it was a show of force. A means of shoring up support for the pro-treaty side in one of the most anti-treaty areas of the country. That, and, well, ever the money man, Collins was there trying to ensure no more funds went towards the cause. That would have been vital to him. But here's that phrase again. We have no way of knowing what Collins's intentions were. All we have is conjecture. Regardless, the anti-treaty forces were in the area and saw an opportunity to ambush Collins. They set up an ambush site at Bale the Blaw, a sort of S-shaped curve in the road between Skibbereen and Cork City. Collins had used it that morning on his way out to Skibbereen and they hoped he would return via the same route. But Collins was slow returning to Cork. He stopped off at his home in Woodfield, took a diversion to Brandon and McCroom, had a few drinks along the way, though again, how much was drank is hotly debated, and he didn't come back through Bale the Blaw until around 8pm that night. Most of the ambush party had given up and gone home at this point, believing they'd missed their chance. They tried something similar on August 21st, but missed him. However, six men were still in position, and three more ran back when they heard the convoy coming up the road. A firefight that lasted approximately 30 minutes occurred. What went down in those 30 minutes has been debated and debated and debated. But here's the general consensus on what happened. Imagine an S on the road heading roughly north to south. Picture it in your mind. At the bottom of the S is Alaric Bridge, and at the top, Carroll's Bridge. To the left is a river with a hill looking over it. Here on the rise, all along the S, the anti-treaty forces were camped out waiting for Collins. The convoy drove past Alaric Bridge. The motorbike in front, then the truck of soldiers, then Collins's yellow Leyland, and finally an armoured car equipped with a machine gun. The bike was near the top of the S when the nine IRA men started shooting from above. Emmett Dalton described how he said to drive, only for Collins to order the Free State men to stop and fight the IRA. The fighting began with both sides shooting back and forth. Fortunately for the Free State, their machine gun jammed. But regardless, the anti-treaty men slowly started to retreat. In this telling of the story, 
Collins was said to have moved back down the way he came, towards Alaric Bridge, to chase and fire at the retreating IRA men. As he did so, a ricochet, a loose bullet, or a shot from someone, we'll debate who later, caught him right in the head. The commander-in-chief, the big fella, one of Ireland's leading figures, was shot and killed. Michael Collins was dead, aged just 31. I won't recommend the film Michael Collins as all that historically accurate, but Neil Jordan does have an interesting summation of Collins's death. He wrote the following. So his life ends in nondescript absurdity. In an ambush that was almost called off, the actors are stunned. It seems to them almost too peremptory, too casual. But that is how it was. A casual bullet in an ambush that felled him while nobody was watching. For many people, the casual absurdity of this seems to be too much. How could someone so important to Irish history, someone who'd done so much and evaded the British for so long, and someone with such a promising future, how, how could he be shot in such an undramatic and anticlimactic ambush? It would be like if George Washington had died of an infection halfway through the American Revolution. Or Julius Caesar had taken an arrow to the chest from some random Averni marauder. Maybe those comparisons sound a little grandiose. But to many, that's what it feels like with Collins. And so the question of who shot Michael Collins has become one debated, unpacked, and argued over for a hundred years. And because we know so little about what actually happened, theories are everywhere. First, we'll start by unpacking what I'll call, for want of a better term, the traditional narrative, where Collins was shot and killed by anti-IRA forces, as I just described. The situation does raise a number of questions. First, what do the eyewitnesses say? Well, so many people have said that they were at Bail the Blaw over the years. That's a little ridiculous. And it's very hard to get an accurate eyewitness account. But the general consensus is that Sonny O'Neill was the man who fired the shot that killed Collins. But it's very hard to say. The anti-treaty IRA were retreating. The gunshots were firing from everywhere. And it's plausible that the killer didn't know what he'd done seems that no one really saw what happened in the chaos. People have argued that O'Neill was a marksman, and others have declared that this isn't the case. But whether he was or he wasn't doesn't really matter. A regular old Joe could have shot Collins without any marksmanship training, and potentially it was someone other than O'Neill. Emmett Dalton, who was head of security, wrote, Mick wouldn't keep down. If he had ever been in a scrap, he'd have learned to stay down. And so Mick was killed standing up. This is a fair accusation, 
As Collins, remember, really wasn't much of a fighter. Despite the uniformed image that has come to dominate his portrayal. The last firefight he'd been in was probably way back in 1916. And that kind of city combat would have been very different to this guerrilla style. But it doesn't look great that Dalton, the head of security, or that this new army itself couldn't protect its commander-in-chief. And it's convenient for the anti-IRA side that they don't really know who shot him. They themselves definitely didn't brag about it afterwards. Seemed everyone was a little bit shocked. We'll discuss that next week. So this is generally what most historians will agree occurred in Belnablaw on August 22nd. That's not to say they all agree with this version of events. And so we start to get a few different theories. Whether they're historical alternatives or just plain up conspiracy theories, well that I'll leave up to you. They're interesting if nonetheless. First, we have the machine gunner theory. This suggests Jock McPeak, the machine gunner, had infiltrated Collins's protection to assassinate the commander-in-chief either on behalf of the IRA or the British. The argument goes that there are a few things that make McPeak look guilty. First, he joined the convoy at the last minute. Slightly suspicious. Second, his machine gun jammed, putting everyone at risk. Kind of more suspicious. Third, a while later, he went on to steal an armoured car and defect to the anti-treaty side. Definitely not a great look, but lots of people did defect. Fourth, there are rumours that Dev paid him a secret pension. Very, very hard to prove and definitely conspiracy stuff. And fifth, there's the fact he left Ireland and tried to change his name. So maybe he was working as a turncoat for the anti-treaty IRA. And that's why he killed Collins. If that is the case, well, does it make much difference if Collins was killed in an ambush by the anti-treaty IRA or if he was killed by an assassin planted by the anti-treaty IRA? It's just a little bit more dramatic. And if you look at these stories, they're all striving for a more dramatic end for Michael Collins. So there's that. The next theory has a little more meat on its bones. And if it's true, well, it has some bigger implications. This one focuses on Emmett Dalton. Many argue that Dalton was a British spy. It was he who assassinated Collins, shooting him at point-blank range. The case against Dalton goes as follows. He was an ex-British officer and an expert marksman at that. He was in charge of security and did a whoppingly terrible job of it. He had close ties with the British for the rest of his life. Some say he even went on to work for MI5. And people talked to singes in Collins' jacket, or a mismatch with where Collins was standing when he was killed, and where the IRA were shooting from, to implicate Dalton. I've seen some historians, and I will use the term lightly, make a whole song and dance about all the ways in which the information points to Dalton. But I've also been in the room, while several other, we'll say, more academic historians 
tear this idea to shreds. Regardless, the rumour persisted throughout Dalton's life. Even his nephew admitted that, quote, he shot Michael Collins at point-blank range with a Luger pistol. Though Dalton's nephew was said to have hated him, he didn't seem to have much in terms of actual hard evidence. Interestingly, Collins's own nephew also believed Dalton was the killer, saying, a brother of mine has, down through the years, and still accuses Dalton as the man who shot Michael Collins. One man residing in Dublin assures me that he knows a man to whom Emmett Dalton admitted he had done the deed. It's not particularly damning evidence there either. Literally, a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. Now, a good detective always looks for motive. And if Dalton had assassinated Collins on behalf of the British, well, I guess we have to ask, how did they benefit? After the fact, reports were written about W.D. Cosgrave, who replaced Collins. Spoiler for future episodes, sorry. They pointed out that Cosgrave, who is now at the head of the Free State Government, seems inclined to run straight. A welcome alternative from Collins, the corner boy in Excelsis. One man, Edward Stanley, who had become Secretary of State, wrote privately that this murder of Collins, however, has done one thing if it has done nothing else. It has shown the world generally what Ireland is and that we were not the brutal and overbearing British nation that we were pictured. Classic, the Irish can't handle themselves thinking there. So maybe that does suggest motive getting rid of the troublesome Collins who was amassing more power than the British liked and was famously tricksy. But equally, the British were in danger of losing everything with Collins and Griffith now gone. They were the strongest advocates for the treaty. A treaty the British desperately wanted to make work. Churchill wrote two days after Collins's death to the Irish cabinet saying, the danger to be avoided is a sloppy accommodation with a quasi-repentant devilaire. It may well be that he will take advantage of the present situation to try to get back from the position of a hunted rebel to that of a political negotiator. Churchill didn't speak too publicly about Collins's death for fear of painting the dead leader as too pro-Britain and thus endangering the treaty. However, he did pay for Collins's sister's boat home. I'm no fan of Churchill, but that is a nice touch. But was he doing it because he respected Collins and wanted to prove this privately? Or out of a sense of guilt for having ordered the man's assassination? You see, you can spin this stuff any way you want. And as I keep saying, there's just no way to know. One thing that is interesting, we'll say, is that the autopsy performed by Oliver St. John Gogarty went missing and was rumoured to be destroyed by a fire in 1932. That just adds to the mystique of the whole situation. So then generally, we have the ambush theory. 
that Collins was killed by Sonny O'Neill or someone from the anti-treaty side in an ambush. We have the machine gun theory. The McPeak, a turncoat, betrayed Collins and was maybe paid by Deb. And we have the Dalton theory. That the British used Dalton to assassinate Collins. With the machine gun theory and others, you have the vague suggestion, not helped by Neil Jordan's film, that De Valera somehow ordered Collins's killing. There seems to be very, very little evidence for this. A lot of these theories stem from the fact that Dev was around Cork at the time. But that's actually fairly unsuspicious. Most major anti-treaty leaders were. And you have to remember how powerless Dev really was at this point in the Civil War. Even Jordan himself says he didn't mean to imply it. And he apologised, saying, I'm sorry if some people take the implication from it that De Valera had a hand in his assassination. I didn't intend that at all. So all in all, it's incredibly unsatisfying to not have a good answer to this question. And the mythology of Michael Collins cries out for conspiracy theories. He said, she said, friend of a friend stories, and anything to make sense of this tragedy. But personally, Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest thing is most likely the correct thing, comes into play here for me. If you put a gun to my head, maybe one carried by a secret British spy, I would say Collins was killed in a very small ambush down a back road of West Cork, killed by a stray bullet, a ricochet, or a lucky shot. It was needless, it was messy, it was undramatic, it was unfitting of the man, and it was a tragedy. That's just how life goes, how war goes. And I think the stories we've told ourselves about Collins and his death are a hell of a lot more interesting and more important to interrogate than who actually did the deed. If you're interested in diving deeper into all of this, I really recommend Anne Dolan and Will Murphy's book, Michael Collins, The Man and the Revolution. They have a chapter on his death that I've relied on heavily here. And I think of anything I've read, they give the best insight into the complicated nature of Bale Nablaw. Whatever happened, whatever you believe, at the end of the day, one of Ireland's leading revolutionaries was dead. So it goes. Next episode, we'll look at the reaction to Collins's death and see how it helped usher in a new, bloodier stage of the Civil War. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening, and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes, or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole, with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Aoife Murphy. 